This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Welcome. I'm Joseph Bobro with Duncan Williams. Duncan was born in Tokyo to a Japanese mother and a British father. After growing up in Japan and England until age 17, he moved to the U.S. to attend college and graduate school and received a Ph.D. in religion. A Zen priest, Duncan Ryuken, is currently the director of the USC Center for Japanese Religions and Culture. He's the author of many books, including The Other Side of Zen, American Buddhism, and Buddhism and Ecology. His latest book, A Great Read and a Los Angeles Times bestseller, is American Sutra, a story of faith and freedom in the Second World War. This sketch doesn't begin to convey the arc of Duncan's work and life. Recently, he's been spearheading and mobilizing some of the most powerful and intersectional grassroots protests in the country. In concert with Tsuru for Solidarity, a nonviolent and direct action project initially created by Japanese-American community leaders, he participated in the March 2019 pilgrimage to Crystal City, a former World War II concentration camp in Texas that housed over 2,000 persons of Japanese ancestry. He also attended and planned a protest at the South Texas Family Residential Center, located just 40 miles away in Dilly, Texas. The Dilly facility holds over a 1,000 asylum seekers, mostly women, children, and infants from Central America and Mexico. When the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services announced that 1,400 unaccompanied migrant children would be transferred from Texas to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, a former World War II internment camp that held 700 persons of Japanese ancestry, including 90 Buddhist priests. Sudo for Solidarity and Duncan mobilized a protest in Oklahoma. More actions followed at Fort Sill. These brought together a coalition of groups, including Dream Action Oklahoma, ACLU Oklahoma, Black Lives Matter, United We Dream, and the American Indian Movement. In the wake of these ceremonial protest actions, plans to transfer more migrant children to Fort Sill were put on hold, and one of the camps was closed. Today, plans are being made for a mass mobilization at the White House in early June. This bare-bones account doesn't capture the resonantly empowered ceremonial connections generated at these events. So let's dive in and hear in intimate detail from Duncan Ryuken Williams. Duncan Williams, welcome to my new podcast with um, the Be Here Now Podcast Network. 
Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here with you. Um, we've had a number of great conversations in the past, um, and I'm looking forward to, to this one as well. Yes, very much so. I hope uh, uh, we have a wonderful conversation. This is a great uh, show that you're doing. Duncan, with, with all the emergencies and crises, disasters and catastrophes really uh, converging at the same time these days, the latest being the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, how are you holding up? Um, okay, you know, um, obviously, uh, things around my own uh, kind of work situation, as it were, my, my university life, my work at the temple, uh, many things have been impacted by uh, the COVID-19 situation in terms of moving things uh, online or, or avoiding gathering and uh, social distances, various things that uh, uh, have certainly impacted uh, the kind of teaching uh, profession, whether it's at a temple or uh, at a university. Yeah, I imagine. What, uh, what keeps you buoyant? Um, you know, I think uh, in a way it, uh, it, it's the, this uh, virus situation kind of shows both sides of that very deep Buddhist teaching about uh, how we are uh, interlinked uh, together, how ourselves are uh, composed of everyone uh, else, uh, all sentient beings on this planet. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, it, shed, it says something about how we might uh, behave uh, with each other uh, in, in a way that uh, uh, you know, is uh, respectful and, and reduces uh, suffering, especially to the most vulnerable uh, elderly people, you know, this, this kind of thing and trying to act in that way. Uh, but also, you know, we, we found so many uh, situations of uh, neighbors or work uh, colleagues or others all tried to look out for each other in this uh, time. Uh, again, kind of showing how we are in many ways invisibly connected with each other. Uh, but sometimes it takes a little crisis to, 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 to make that manifest. Well, I, I, I wish it took just a little crisis. And unfortunately, it looks like it's taking a, a very big crisis uh, right. to wake us up here and to realize that as a culture, we're only as strong as the, the worst insured of us. Right. Um, is there part of not only coronavirus, but the overall world situation today uh, that concerns you the most? You know, uh, as you were saying earlier, there's uh, so many different types of uh, situations as mm -hmm. COVID-19 coronavirus situation. There's global climate change. There's what's happening uh, at the southern border with uh, migrants. There's, there's so many different issues. And I think one of the things that uh, from a Buddhist perspective, uh, I've been kind of trying to reflect on is mm -hmm. how to uh, not become overwhelmed by so many different crises in a way, yeah. you know what I mean? I and, and it's, it's like a, it's almost like, it's like a one big different, uh, a, a undifferentiated mass of suffering of different registers and levels and beings, uh, uh, involved in that suffering. And I think the, the one thing I really appreciate about Buddhism is that it gives us a perspective about that interlinked nature of reality that suggests that, you know, whatever is the thing that you have a karmic uh, connection to, to mm -hmm. alleviate suffering. And we can think in very broad, general terms about alleviation of suffering, but I think whatever we have the most karmic connection to, that's the one we should be working on. Because when we work on one thing, because of how the world is interconnected, it actually ultimately affects and, uh, and uh, resounds and resonates throughout that entire uh, web of, of, of our life. And so, you know, for me, I, I tend to rank things about what I get involved with and, and most concerned about uh, less to do with 
let's say the politics of it or uh, the science of it or what, but for me, it's like, what do I have karmic connection to? And uh, I think because of, in recent times, I wrote this book called American Sutra about what happened to Japanese Americans during World War II and that incarceration history uh, back then. I think I'm most concerned and involved with things that relate to how kind of race and religion and belonging tend to work, not only in the United States, but around the world, and uh, how inclusion and exclusion of people uh, uh, seems to work on those two axes. Uh, so that's the issue that I'm most uh, these days focused on, while fully recognizing that whether it's global climate change or um, uh, different kinds of geopolitical situations, uh, both inside of the United States and outside. We have a lot of different issues that are all kind of, you know, uh, bleeding into and, and, and impacting each other. Mm -hmm. The Quakers have a word for that as well. They call it a lead when you felt, feel a, a lead that draws you to something. Uh, it's also called a calling or a felt sense. Uh, I really appreciate you talking about it because I, I hear quite a few people uh, talk about how overwhelming and how they all can bleed into one mm -hmm. another and how can, I, how can I help all of them? Right. Uh, so I think your idea of, uh, not idea, but your experience of a karmic link or a felt link to a particular um, issue is is very important. Can you tell us, Duncan, a little bit about how you came to Buddhism? And uh... sure, you know, I I grew up uh, in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, my mom is Japanese and my dad is British. And uh, when I was growing up, we would go both to a Buddhist temple, you know, that's connected to my mother's side of the family, a Buddhist family. And uh, my dad being from England, uh, we would also go to St. Albans Church in Tokyo, which was an Anglican uh, uh, church. And so I think while I was growing up, you know, my mom would only speak Japanese to me. My dad would only speak English. And so I had this kind of upbringing where um, I kind of, by my teenage years, was trying to ask this question of like, am I Japanese? Am I British? Am I Buddhist? Am I Christian? Like trying to, that question of identity, who am I? Mm -hmm. And I think at some point in those years, my teenage years, I came across Dogen, Zen Master Dogen, uh, who lived from 1200 to 1253, the founder of the Soto Zen Buddhist tradition of Buddhism mm -hmm. in Japan. And he has a wonderful set of lines in one of his classic texts that he wrote um, called the Genjo Koan. It's a, it's a fascicle or a chapter within his magnus opus, the Shobo Genzo. And he says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. And the second line is, to study the self is to forget the self. And the third line is, to forget the self is to be actualized by the 10,000 things. And it goes on. But that idea of Buddhism as being the study or investigation of that question, who am I? It, it, it became this uh, very interesting uh, kind of inquiry point into uh, a tradition that also, to be honest, it, 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 it's a tradition, you know, also, also known as Chudo in Japanese or middle way or middle path that, that suggested that answers to things uh, kind of lie in that in-between zone, uh, not in one extreme or another. And for me, that was a very interesting entry point to uh, have a framework to think about my own questions about identity, who am I, uh, that didn't require me to choose between either parent, if you understand what I mean. I didn't, uh, that Buddhism kind of had this approach that said, you can kind of have this flexible identity that uh, embraces both uh, or the fullness of who you are. And that was a very um, 
helpful message for me at a time when my, at least at that time, image of the Christian tradition was that it had this more foundationalist idea of identity where your identity was kind of like essentially X or foundationally Y. Mm. And you kind of had to choose one Mm. uh, to not only be in the world, but to understand how that leads to liberation or salvation. And so I think at that point, Buddhism became the frame that would help me kind of navigate those uh, kind of teenage years of trying to figure out who I was. Um, so it's actually an ongoing question, isn't it? But, uh, uh, but I think it was, a, it was a helpful entry point into uh, a tradition that I then became involved with as a lay person initially. And then in, when I was 22 years old, I became ordained as a priest in the Soto Zen tradition in Japan and went to a temple and monastery in, in Nagano Prefecture in Japan to do some further training and learning. And so that kind of, um, how should we say, entry into a tradition, entry into the priesthood, entry into uh, an academic life and career of studies that I would go on to do uh, in graduate school for a, uh, a PhD in that field of Buddhist studies and so forth. I think it all kind of begins with this question, who am I? Now, you became a scholar and an academic and the director of Japanese Buddhist program at, um, at uh, USC. Tell me about the shift or the evolution or perhaps the the revolution that happened uh, with American Sutra, the inspiration for American Sutra. Because it seems like, in addition to being a priest and a scholar, you're now actualizing your Buddhism in ways that are a little bit different and have expanded. And uh, so tell us about American Sutra and the unearthing the multiple unearthings that uh, uh, that led to some of what you're involved in now, which we'll which we'll talk about in more depth later. Sure. So, um, the book American Sutra tackles this topic of what happened during World War II to 125,000 persons of Japanese ancestry who were suddenly forcibly removed from their homes and put in. Uh, various kinds of confinement sites, internment camps, and so forth in the American interior uh, without any, uh, you know, crime committed or uh, espionage or sabotage uh, ever Mm -hmm. discovered by the American government. And my my big question in the book had to do with how and why did that happen? And it turns out Buddhism has a lot to do with it. Uh, the, The government viewed you know, today I, th- I, I think we don't see Buddhism as a kind of uh, s- strange, un-American threat to national security, but that's exactly how people back in 1941 viewed that religion. Right. And the Japanese Americans were the largest group of people, uh, Buddhists in, in, in America at that time, and uh, the vast majority of that community uh, affiliated with uh, the Buddhist tradition, and the government uh, uh, saw Buddha, the, that fact of Buddhist affiliation as a reason for why this group, as opposed to the entire Italian-American community or the entire German-American community, having to be rounded up and put in camps. Or even, even the Japanese Christian community. Right. So initially, you know, the very first person they arrest right after Pearl Harbor, the FBI goes around and they have a list of people that they uh, consider to be the highest level threats to national security. And you'd think maybe people, you know, associated with the consulate or something like that would be the first people picked up, but no, it's Buddhist priests. Mm -hmm. And so that was the view at that time that Buddhism was, un-American and, in fact, anti-American. And so that's one of the things I discovered for the book uh, that's maybe a little bit different from prior research scholarship on that topic, which is a pretty big topic about what happened during World War II, but that religion 
and race coming together played this uh, role for why this group was targeted, that kind of animus that was directed towards one particular group. That's one part of the book. And the other part of the book uh, is this uh, question of how people, in fact, turn in that moment of, you know, they just lost everything. They're in a state of dislocation. They're behind barbed wire with guard towers, with armed guards, with guns pointing inwards. That place of non-freedom, how do you find freedom or liberation in in that kind of circumstance? How do you draw on your faith, your Buddhist faith, because that's what most of the people belong to, to to help orient yourself in that kind of situation. And it all began when I discovered this diary. Uh, My own mentor uh, at Harvard University, Masatoshi Nagatomi, his father's uh, World War II diaries written in a camp called Manzanar. Uh, What he had written in that diary, some notes he had uh, jotted down, for sermons that he gave or Dharma mm-hmm. talks that he gave uh, in these camps. That's what inspired me to do the research and write this book. Uh, but it, in there, there's a lot about how people drew on Buddhist insight, perspective, ritual, and community to survive this very difficult time. So that's what the book is uh, trying to do is document that history because it's, it's a history that uh, even those who have studied that period, uh, somehow the Buddhist part has been kind of written out of that history. And I wanted to, to, to put some attention to that, not only for the study of World War II Japanese-American internment studies, but also for understanding American Buddhism in general, that if we understand that this period uh, of, of, of American history uh, was an important moment in when people who were told you don't belong uh, in a vision of America that was, you know, essentially a white Christian nation type of vision of who properly belonged to uh, America. These, these are people that were, in a way, asserting, no, America is a nation of religious freedom, not of a monolithic or supremacist religion or race, and so it's, it's a they by 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 persisting in their Buddhism, I think they were actually manifesting and actualizing a different kind of idea of America, one that is multi-ethnic in character and religiously plural and free, and that's something that uh, I wanted to write about uh, because it, it I think you know says a lot not only about where people were back then, but uh, how we are actually thinking about who are we, what is America, who is included, who is excluded, those type of questions, uh, unfortunately, are still enduring ones uh, today as well. Can you give us a story, an example from those years during World War II that... uh, expresses the faith, the persistence, um, how community and ceremony um, helped people not only cope, but um, find ways to inspire themselves and continue and evolve Buddhist practice. Can you share a story or vignette or two? Sure, I'm happy to do that. The, the one that comes to my mind right now is of a story around the Buddha's birthday. It's a, uh, a story that um, comes from one of the diaries I translated for the book, where one of the Buddhist priests who had been arrested right on December 7, 1941, it was a Sunday, and so many Buddhist temples were holding Buddhist services. And the FBI came to the temple, took this Buddhist priest, and didn't even let him go back home to get a suitcase to pack any toiletries or clothes or anything. So he gets rounded up. And in the Japanese Buddhist tradition, the Buddha's birthday is celebrated in April, usually. It's called Hanamatsuri, or Flower Festival. And it comes from the legend 
of the Buddha's birth, where the heavens were uh, apparently so pleased with the Buddha's birth that it rained flowers and sweet rain. And so in a regular Buddhist uh, Buddha's birthday ceremony, they, they usually have a little shrine covered with flowers, a little statue of the baby Buddha, and ritually people go up there uh, and pour some sweet tea to represent that sweet rain. And so that's the normal way the Buddha's birthday is celebrated. And if you can imagine in these camps, they don't have all of these statues and different things. And so one story comes from one of the camps where they were really adaptive to that situation. They went to the toilets and got toilet paper, went to the mess hall, got some beets and dyed that paper red and folded it like origami style as flowers. They didn't have sweet tea, but they had army rationed sugar and coffee. So they made a sweet coffee drink. Uh, they didn't have a Buddha statue. So they, one of the young men went to the mess hall, got the largest carrot he could find and carved a Buddha out of the carrot, pouring ritually that sweet coffee on that carrot Buddha. But in another camp where they had the similar circumstance and they didn't have these things, uh, uh, one of the men, as I mentioned, who was arrested right on the day of Pearl Harbor, he gave a Dharma talk in which he talked about his own situation and his robes. Because he hadn't been allowed to go back home, his robes are very, very dirty. And he gave a Dharma talk that was very inspirational to me, uh, where he said, uh, he, he asked everyone to recall the classic Buddhist metaphor or image of the lotus flower kind of blossoming above muddy waters. Mm -hmm. And usually the metaphor is, you know, the muddy water is our world of suffering, delusion, uh, greed, uh, different kinds of uh, uh, things that kind of like muddy our lives and that Buddhist practice is about kind of rising up above it and that lotus flower is, you know, symbolic of the Buddha's enlightenment. Often the Buddha is seated on a lotus petal. So it's supposed to represent the Buddha's awakening, liberation, and so forth. But the way he gave the Dharma message on the Buddha's birthday as they were trying to recreate Buddhist life in camp, he said, it's not, it's, we would misunderstand the metaphor if we thought that it was about transcendence, about trying to escape from this world of suffering. He said, look at my robes. They are muddy. They are dirty. Uh, and it's, in, you know, within this clothes or this situation, that we have to find our Buddhist practice because when you put a lotus flower and try to grow it in pure or sterile water, it actually won't grow. It's only when it's in the mud and the nutrients from that mud can uh, be drawn by the flower that it can actually rise up and blossom into a lotus flower. So that was his message that, uh, you know, he was pointing to his own robes, he's pointing to his own situation behind barbed wire in the desert uh, in one of these camps and saying, this is the right place for practice. This is the right ingredients uh, to, 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 you know, test ourselves because uh, these are the moments when it kind of matters. Uh, these are the moments when our practice, our faith is uh, most fully uh, engaged and tested. And so I thought I found that a really interesting Dharma talk that was given in the midst of one of these camps that is really about how do you find freedom? How do you find liberation when you're not free uh, in a certain way? Uh, how can you still do something in terms of changing perspective, still engaging in a ritual, even if you have to make a Buddha out of a carrot, you know, and still forming community? Uh, a sangha, uh, despite you know every and all efforts to try to disband that. So to me, that was a very interesting kind of like a perspective that uh, somebody from in the midst of that situation. Uh, I think that message kind of still resonates for all of us today because I think we all find different moments when our we feel less free, and 
And yet it's in that very situation that we can sometimes find our, our own uh, liberation and freedom. Thank you for those stories. It makes me uh, recall a story that the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh told um, about an activist named Jim Douglas with whom he was friends who was jailed in the Pacific Northwest for some actions. And for a time he was in solitary confinement and was going crazy and wrote Thich Nhat Hanh who wrote him back and taught him what's now become known as the tangerine meditation, that uh, if they give him a tangerine as part of his meal, he can just be mindful of that tangerine as presenting the whole of liberation, the whole universe. If he could become one with that tangerine and eating that tangerine, he could find a measure of freedom within his confinement and the injustice and the oppressiveness. What I have been so moved, as, as you know, uh, from, from the first time I heard about American Sutra and met you, I think part of the dimension that I've been so moved by is the liberation in community. Mm. The Sangha as the vehicle of liberation. And... Uh, Sangha ritual and ceremony as having a great ritual mythic power to, again, as you say, not so much transcend, but to find a degree of freedom, a, a, a crease um, into which we can enter and uh, find our liberation and help others find their liberation. Uh, one of the people who was very inspiring in this work during World War II was uh, Zen Roshi named Nyogen Senzaki, who was one of the early teachers of my teacher, uh, Robert Aitken Roshi. And um, I wonder if you could read um, a poem that you begin your book with. In fact, I think it's the epigraph of of your book. It's uh, very moving. This is Nyogen Senzaki. Sure. This is a, a poem that I opened the book with called Parting. That's the title of the poem. And he's writing, um, as you said, he's a Rinzai Zen teacher writing to his Sangha, his community in Los Angeles, the ones who are not taken uh, as he is, uh, as he is parting uh, the community to go into one of these uh, camps, he writes this poem. And so let me read that. Parting. Thus have I heard. The army ordered all Japanese faces to be evacuated from the city of Los Angeles. This homeless monk has nothing but a Japanese face. He stayed here 13 springs, meditating with all faces from all parts of the world and studied the teaching of Buddha with them. Wherever he goes, he may form other groups, inviting friends of all faces, beckoning them with the empty hands of Zen. So that's the poem uh, that uh, I started the book with. And so, uh, of course, as you know, but for our listeners, we'll say that the, the first line of that poem is also the line with which the Buddha begins his teachings, begins his um, sutras. Uh, right. Thus have I heard. That's right. So, evam uh, mesuttam in, the, in the Sanskrit. But that idea uh, that comes from uh, the first council, uh, the first Buddhist council after the Buddha's death, uh, you know, at that time they didn't have recorders or they didn't even write down the Buddha's sermon. So they ask the great disciple of the Buddha, who's supposed to have a great memory, Ananda, to recall what uh, all of the Buddha's, you know, sermons and teachings were all about. And at that first council, Ananda begins each of his recollection with this phrase, thus have I heard. And so he's trying to qualify it a little bit. And usually that opening of a Buddhist scripture or sutra is followed by a scene of 
this many arhats or these many bodhisattvas. Like it, it shows who is gathered and then the teaching then follows. And so for me, what's interesting about this poem is it's written in the form of a Buddhist sutra and then setting the scene of who's assembled. Right. It's these people with Japanese faces and it's the U.S. Army, you know, doing this thing. But then this entire situation of, of forced removal and mass incarceration and what these people are going through is part of the teaching. Uh, what this... Uh, uh, priest is is also pointing to about beckoning people with the empty hands of zen like this kind of aspiration of being able to form future sanghas that is not restricted to one kind of face but all faces that that future building of american buddhism is actually you know something that he sees as uh he that 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 uh, something that his community and everybody will be able to pursue, uh, despite what is happening with the U.S. Uh, Army's policy. To me, like that kind of uh, hopeful message about uh, the future forming of a sangha, the uh, ability to uh, withstand any kinds of uh, force removal, incarceration. And not just withstand it, but like but that is the actual teaching. There's some teaching deep in that. Um, it's a kind of sutra in that sense. Uh, to me, that's a very powerful poem for somebody to have written uh, right in the midst of, of that kind of situation. It's a very powerful teaching and example of living the teaching. Right. I was very struck uh, by a story in the book. I think it was the family of um, your professor or your professor's father, where uh, your professor's wife or the wife of his, his father, uh, when she was growing up, the pressure to acculturate was so powerful that there's a powerful image of a young girl weeping as her uh, cultural artifacts are thrown in the fire. Right. Uh, can you say just a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, she, this is my professor's uh, wife when she was a young girl, mm -hmm. uh, 10 years oldish, uh, uh, at the outbreak of World War II. Uh, she comes home from school one day and sees her father being beaten by some men in suits and her mother sitting at the kitchen table very still with somebody pointing a shotgun to her mom's head. And she uh, related to me that even though you know she was pretty young, she knew she had to step in to help that situation uh, because her parents didn't speak any uh, or very little English and these men in suits didn't speak very much Japanese. And what they figured out was her, the, it was the men in suits were FBI special agents who were there to interrogate her father because he was uh, the, on the board, a senior member of the board of the local Buddhist association. And so he was on some FBI watch list. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, from the father's perspective, um, uh, the FBI would actually leave that day, come back several more times. He was not, you know, against America. And so how he did it was he went around the house and got everything that had Japanese kanji characters on it, made in Japan. And for her as an 11-year-old girl, and that's why she was weeping, uh, the Hinamatsuri Ningyo, the Girls' Day doll set, and threw all of that into the fire as a, as a kind of way to demonstrate that they are not a threat to America. But he hesitated at the last moment with a couple of other documents that he had in his hand. And his daughter was wondering what, you know, was more important than her dolls. And so she asked him and he said, These, this is a Buddhist sutra that has been handed down generation by generation through our family. And I can't throw this in the fire. He also had all, because he was on the board of the local Buddhist association, he had all the records from its founding all the way up to December 1941, and he didn't feel they were his personal property to just be able to throw into the fire. So he gets a box 
for these two, the sutra and the temple records, and buries it on his farm. And long story short, he, the, the family, like everybody else, they, they go to uh, internment, you know, they have to sell their farm for one twenty of its market value. They, they uh, go away, but they have to bury this, this box with, with these sutras and Buddhist temple history, American history in, 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 in it. And when they return after the war, they're unable to buy their farm back. And so, but he, but he wants to find that box right. and tries to dig it up and can't, you know, ends up not being able to find it. Um, and so somewhere in the soul of California, there's these Buddhist sutras and, you know, temple history buried. But for me, the kind of big point of this story is that here was one family, a Buddhist family, who in their effort to say, when their governments told them, you don't belong, you're excluded from our idea of what's American. Uh, they tried to make their best effort to, you know, they're burning away their Japanese symbolically. But they didn't want to burn away their faith and their Buddhist faith. And somehow that to me is a story of a family saying, we can be both Buddhist and American at the same time, despite what our government is tell telling us. And so that's one story, but there are, you know, tens of thousands of Buddhist families who had other kinds of stories of those moments when they were trying to say, we can be both Buddhist and American at the same time, despite what the media, society in general, or the government is telling us. And all of those stories are sutras. And right. you're giving life in this book and in the work you're, you're doing now with uh, Suru for Solidarity, which we'll get to in a moment, you're giving life to these living sutras and examples of people working with suffering that's not only internal suffering, which is mostly the kind that the Buddha spoke about, but external suffering uh, imposed by others, oppression, tyranny. Um, and uh, so I think it, it has special importance. So let's look at another thing that was buried. Tell us about the stones, the stone sutras at Heart Mountain. Yes. Um, so one of the, well, this is a story that's at the tail end of the book. Mm -hmm. and, and in a way, that initial burying of, of the sutras by this one family that begins the book. And at the end, there's an uncovering after the war uh, near the cemetery at Heart Mountain, one of the uh, 10 large, in, you know, uh, in, incarceration uh, uh, sites, uh, one of these camps in the interior in the state of Wyoming. They dig up after the war, it's like early 50s, they, they, they dig up by accident uh, oil drum that uh, out of which comes all of these stones and in, on each stone there's a Japanese kanji character mm -hmm. uh, and for a long time they used to call these the heart mountain mystery stones because they didn't know what these stones were and who wrote them and what they represented or mm -hmm. anything and 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 uh, over time different scholars uh, in Buddhist studies uh, we've been uh, Working on this, uh, some scholars in Japan uh, did the really important work of basically identifying these stones and the characters of them as part of a uh, section of the Lotus Sutra, one of the important Mahayana Buddhist scriptures, and that its most likely uh, uh, author was a, a Nichiren Buddhist priest uh, from Los Angeles uh, who... Uh, had a practice of, he was actually the camp's calligraphy instructor, mm -hmm. uh, but had a practice of writing out the Lotus Sutra, and this time on the stones uh, taken from, uh, you know, whatever stones they could find in uh, the camp in, in, in Wyoming. And uh, there's an old tradition in Japan. It's called Kyozuka, or Sutra Burial. When people feel like... Uh, the, the times for being able to practice the Dharma are getting difficult. Uh, they, they used to have this practice of copying, writing out 
including on stone uh, sutras and, and bury them uh, and to, for a time when a better moment when one could practice Buddhism uh, more uh, uh, fruitfully. And so we believe that that's what this particular priest was doing in, in, in Wyoming. He wrote out the Lotus Sutra, which is the most common type of this buried sutra uh, genre in Japanese history, buried it, not in Japan, but in, you know, near the cemetery in one of these uh, internment camps. And uh, to me, the, the, that hope, that aspiration that one day a Buddhism would be able to be practiced more freely, um, that, that hope and prayer was imbued in that sutra uh, that was buried. And uh, in that case, obviously, it, was, it, it kind of emerged and came out of the ground uh, to reveal something uh, to us about how people you know, yearned for that day when Buddhism in America could be uh, practiced uh, uh, without constraint and freely. And so uh, I, I ended the book that way uh, to kind of point forward to the building of something called American Buddhism um, that uh, uh, going back to the first poem that would, you know, be of all faces. Yes. Let's talk about what's unfolded. <clears throat> and, and the great, the great interest um, that's unfolded in, in American Sutra, your book, and some of the actions which you and like-minded individuals have pursued since then. Uh, so from a priest and a scholar, a researcher, writer, um, you're taking your Buddhism into the world and um, collaborating on creating actions actions that offer the opportunity for others to speak as well and um, to recruit community and ceremony in new ways. So why don't you say a little bit about the bridge that happened to that and about some of those actions? Sure. So, you know, those type of things that we saw back in World War II, where that conflation of race and religion um, led to the targeting of one community, um, to kind of smearing an entire community, uh, as opposed to looking at people's individual actions or crimes or anything like that, as the basis for incarceration, for exclusion, and so forth. That, unfortunately, seems to be repeating, or history seems to be repeating itself. So today, we see with the travel ban, uh, the ways in which uh, it's a kind of fulfillment of a campaign promise about a complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Mm. It doesn't mention the word Muslim or, you know, in the, in the executive order itself, just like back in World War II, executive order 9066 that led to the mass incarceration of all these Japanese Americans, 125,000 members of that community, doesn't mention the word Japan or Japanese Americans in the executive order. But the intent, intended target is quite clear in both cases. That's on religion uh, today, you know, in, in terms of exclusion. And then what's happening at the southern border in terms of migrants seeking uh, refuge and asylum, uh, as they legally have the right to do, but not afforded the opportunity to have their hearings heard and so forth and be put in detention. And especially, I think that what's happening uh, uh, initially as an intended deterrent policy of separating children from their families as a kind of sending a message of deterrence to people coming up and asking for asylum hearings. Uh, this kind of thing resonated, I think, a lot with Japanese-American 
community members, uh, especially those who are in their late 80s, early 90s today, who were children back in World War II. And they recall that very few people stood up for them, uh, raised a voice of concern, wrote editorials or protest, you know, certainly protest, you know, very few protests or anything like that about what happened mm-hmm. to when, when this 125,000 member community, two thirds of whom were American citizens were just put into these camps. And they were like, we might be old. We, we were camp survivors. You know, we were children back then. We know what uh, family separation is like. We know what uh, indefinite uh, incarceration is like. They've been kind of spearheading this movement called solid, uh, Tsuru for Solidarity. The word Tsuru in Japanese means crane. And historically, the crane is a symbol of transformation and uh, prayer for uh, more peaceable and hopeful future. And so they've been folding Tsuru or cranes, uh, you know, like origami paper cranes, mm-hmm. placing them as part of protests on the fencing of various kinds of detention facilities run by the border patrol or ICE uh, and, and saying back then, maybe nobody stood up for our community, but we're going to stand up in solidarity uh, uh, with these people that have been targeted because of either race or religion in our time. And so uh, I kind of, since the book came out, began to get involved with this uh, group only because, uh, again, this kind of mysterious karmic connection to things. Uh, one of the co-founders of that movement had gone to one of these, the largest of these facilities on in Texas, in Dilly, Texas, and put cranes made from color photocopies of the front cover of my book, American Sutra and and folded those into cranes and put them on up on the fence there, and that's when I became uh, inspired to educate myself, learn more about what's happening on the southern border, especially with these children, what kind of uh, inhumane conditions they have about sleeping on concrete floors with a maybe a mylar blanket, not being afforded toothpaste, all these kind of conditions that people I think just out of human decency and dignity, uh, I don't think we as, a, as, as uh, Americans would want our nation to be uh, uh, conducting itself in this way. And so I've been involved with that movement, encouraging other people, including Buddhists of all denominations and lineages to maybe fold some cranes and uh, perhaps go out with this group to uh, these detention facilities and and uh, bring our voice, our kind of moral voice, into the conversation. Well, <clears throat> you all learned that 1,400 individuals, uh, families, women and children, mostly were going to be moved uh, to Fort Sill as a kind of holding environment. And uh, I was struck looking at the video of your action there Number one, at the old timers who who you are describing, and um, you know in the book you describe them as either being too modest or too hurt to speak up at the time, and you giving them voice in your book. But this was different. This was you participating in a ceremonial action in which they spoke with their own voices. And they didn't only speak with their own voices, but they acted with their own bodies and all of you, I'm thinking particularly of them now being as as old as some of them were, putting their bodies on the line. Right. And I remember an MP coming up and threatening over and over and over, repeatedly, repeated instances, threatening arrest and intimating worse. And... Um, one woman, a couple of women saying in particular, well, just go ahead, go ahead. And that measure of defiance, while also expressing in a peaceful, determined way the, the, the Buddhist practice, um, seemed to me just, just remarkable and uh, moving. 
Yes. So that action, or actually it's a series of actions that were held at Fort Sill, uh, Oklahoma. It's an active U.S. Army base, but back in World War II, it was a Japanese internment camp. And this is where they were proposing to move 1,400 children who've been separated from their families. It's a camp that back in World War II, uh, I did research about because it held 700 uh, Japanese uh, uh, nationals, uh, community leaders in the main, 90 of them Buddhist priests. And one of the diaries I translated talked about how they had to perform, the 90 Buddhist priests performed a funeral uh, for three men, two of them uh, who had been killed by guards. And so I think our prayer was that history not repeat itself in that way, certainly, mm -hmm. that if the children were to be moved to this former World War II internment camp, uh, that the guards of our time, we also praying for the children, but also the guards not to abuse or certainly kill uh, uh, children. Uh, that's something that uh, was at the heart of, uh, I think, our, our prayer. But as you were saying, these World War II camp survivors uh, standing resolutely um, alongside, at least at the second protest, we had 400 Latinx dreamers, these young people, high school, college age people who uh, were unafraid, uh, despite their legal status, uh, to... To, because it's a very personal thing for them too, you know, see cousins and, you know, so, so seeing those type of communities interlinked, these histories being uh, kind of like uh, pulled together, mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, there's something very um, uh, moving about different types of people standing up and standing together with, with each other. And there we also tried as from a Buddhist uh, uh, clergy's perspective, we, we had uh, at one of the protests, uh, I invited people to come. I didn't know how many people would join me, uh, but uh, in the end, 25 people, uh, uh, mainly clergy and a few lay leaders, uh, uh, we, we, we performed a, a Buddhist ceremony, uh, both at that fence where those people were killed back in World War II as a kind of memorial service, mm -hmm. but also together with these Latinx dreamers, we formed a kind of interlinking uh, a ceremony of remembrance kind of dedicated towards anybody that's experienced indefinite incarceration and uh, unjust uh, deportation and, and uh, family separation and so forth, that these, uh, uh, you know, different communities came together uh, in a ritual way. We, we try to do it as part of a a, a, a religious ceremony. So it's, it was an interesting kind of blend of like traditional kind of like protest, you know, shouting and chanting slogans, so, but also a kind of solemn uh, ceremonial way of, of noting our interconnectedness. From a psychological perspective, uh, I see a kind of um, healing and transformation of the residues of historical collective and present-day suffering in the actions that you're describing, uh, Duncan. And um, it moves me a great deal, and I think it has a tremendous amount of relevance for us today in our collective situation. And also, what you've spoken about um, is instructive in terms of people who, so many of us, where issues become a, a big amalgam and tend to overwhelm us. Uh, I really uh, appreciate uh, uh, your stories and the, the instruction you've given and how you, both uh, through your book and through the actions and today in our in our podcast, uh, are, are taking uh, Buddhist principles and practices as they distill and continue to distill and evolve within you and making them real for our world to relieve not only individual suffering, 
uh, and to help individuals become liberated, but to transform collective suffering and to provide individuals with an opportunity to both mitigate and transform their own suffering while, while providing action that helps repair the world. Um, so I want to thank you for all of your work and thank you so much for uh, taking the time this morning to uh, be in dialogue with me. Well, thank you so much, Joe, and, and uh, thank you for all you do. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNowToday to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.com.